This is Naima Novetsky from TanakhStudy.com. In today's class, we'll introduce and begin our study of Vayikra Perak Chavgimel, Chapter 23. It's known as Parashat Hamoadim as it speaks of the various holidays throughout the year. The previous few chapters of Sefer Vayikra focused on the theme of holiness as it relates to the people. First, the nation as a whole, and then specifically the holiness of priests. Our chapter switches focus to deal with the sanctity of time. As we introduce the chapter in this class, we'll first talk a bit about this concept of sacred time, then compare the various chapters throughout Tanakh which talk about the different festivals, and finally conclude with an overview of our chapter itself through a discussion of its structure. Starting with the sanctity of time. If holiness means separation, as we've seen in the past, then the concept of holy days means at its most simple level, days which are set apart from the rest of the year. Our chapter calls these days Moadim, from the root Yud Ayin Dalid, meaning to appoint or designate. Again, at its most simple level, they are days which have been designated by Hashem to be set apart. But the word Moed also has the connotation of meeting, as in the phrase Ohel Moed, the tense of meeting. As such, the word expresses that these days are meant to be days of meeting between Hashem and the nation, days set aside to connect to and think about Hashem. It's possible that the word Moed is also related to one other root, Edut, testimony. This suggests that the various days are supposed to testify to something, likely the various events and seasons which each marks. For as is well known, the various holidays have two aspects, one connected to the past and one to the present. Each of the three pilgrimage holidays commemorate and testify to a past event in which Hashem's providence was especially revealed the Exodus, Matan Torah, or the miracles in the wilderness. But these holidays also have an agricultural component, as they mark the harvest, reaping, and gathering. As such, they also serve as days of thanksgiving for what Hashem continually gives us, for His revelation and providence in the present. Taken together then, a Moed is a day set apart to connect and meet with Hashem, in which we testify to and thank Him for His providence in both the past and present. Throughout the chapter, the various holidays are referred to not just as Moadim, but more specifically as Moadei Hashem. They are Hashem's set times. Rav Hirsch points out that one of the things which most marks the independence of man is his ability to do as he pleases with his time. A slave cannot dispose of his time as, his wish, as he wishes. His every second is his master's. He must always be available to do his master's bidding, not his own. Interestingly, the very first mitzvah given to the nation after being freed from Egypt is to set aside the month of Nisan as the first month of the year. It is now Hashem, rather than Paro, who is to govern our time. In setting certain days of the years of the year to be Moadei Hashem, holy days for Hashem, in which we must do as Hashem instructs, Hashem sends the clear message, I am your master. However, in contrast to a master who tells his slave that he must work, Hashem tells us that on these days we must refrain from work and instead engage in spirituality and connect to him. Yes, Hashem is our master, but he's also our father and as such, a very different master. Right after referring to the holidays as Moadei Hashem, Hashem mandates, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. On one hand, 
These days are holy because Hashem set them as such. They are Moadei Hashem. But Hashem tells us that this is not enough. It's also incumbent on us to declare these days sacred. We must also do our part to set them aside and to make them holy. From a practical perspective, this means that Hashem mandates that we be the ones to sanctify time. The Beitin, the court, must declare every new moon and must decide when to make a leap year. On a more fundamental level, though, Hashem might be saying that for the festivals to be really holy, we need to call them holy, meaning we need to recognize them as holy days, to use them as days of commemoration, meeting, and thanksgiving. Though on one hand, Hashem is master of our time, dictating what we do, on another level, He has given us both the privilege and the responsibility of sanctifying our own time. This idea that there's a human aspect in sanctifying time is, I think, a very important one, and one which goes way beyond the holidays. In Judaism, the concept of sacred time pervades the entire year. There is a recognition that any time can be made holy if that time is filled with doing good. As such, we have the ability and the obligation not to waste each day, but to fill them with good deeds, observance of mitzvot, and act of kindness, and thereby to instill every day with sanctity. With this as an introduction, let's move into a discussion of the various places in which Torah discusses these sacred days and festivals. Besides our chapter, there are four other places where the Torah speaks of the various cycles of holy days. In Shemot chapters 23 and 34, in Bimidbar chapters 28 through 29, and in Dvarim chapter 16. Each of these five main lists of holidays is somewhat different from one another. They include different holidays, call them by different names, use different systems of dating, and emphasize different laws or aspects of each day. So for example, while the two lists in Shemot and the list in Dvarim mention only the three pilgrimage holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, Sefer Vayikra includes also Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, and Shabbat. Bimidbar is the fullest list, including also Rosh Chodesh. As far as their dating, the lists in Shemot and Dvarim do not provide exact dates and instead connect the holidays to the solar agricultural year, dating Pesach to the month of the Aviv or spring, and Sukkot to the time of gathering. Bimidbar, in contrast, gives exact lunar dates, dating the month and day in which each of the various holidays fall out. Our chapter falls somewhere in the middle, giving exact lunar dates, but also referencing the agricultural year. For example, it dates Sukkot to the 15th of the seventh month when you gathered the fruit of the land. Regarding their names, while Dvarim refers to the three major holidays as Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, Shemot 24 refers to them as Chag HaMatzot, Chag HaKatsir, and Chag HaAsif. Bimidbar, in contrast, does not even name all the holidays, referring to many only by their lunar date. Each list also picks up on different laws related to the various holidays to discuss. Bimidbar focus, uh, focuses on the Musaf offering, while Dvarim and Shemot, which speak only of the three pilgrimage holidays, emphasize the mitzvah Aliyah Regal and the need to serve Hashem in the Mikdash specifically. The focus of our chapter is a bit harder to pinpoint as it seems to be inconsistent in what it includes. For example, it, it alludes to the sacrifices of the day, but gives specifics only about a couple. It mentions certain specific laws, such as taking the four species on Sukkot or fasting on Yom HaKippurim, but does not do this methodically for each holiday, 
omitting, for example, mention of the prohibition to eat leavened food on Chag HaMatzot. Finally, it mentions the historical aspects of some of the holidays, like Sukkot, but not others. So what does all of this amount to? What is the unique aspect of each list? And most importantly for us, what message is the list in Bayikra trying to express? It seems that the various lists of Moadim can be divided into two groups, Shemot and Devarim on one hand, and Bayikram B'midbar on the other. The list in Shemot and Devarim are alike in that each mention only the pilgrimage holidays, highlight centralization of worship, are dated to the solar year, and mention the agricultural components of the day. The choice to highlight specifically these aspects of the holidays is understood when we note that each of these lists appear in the context of a discussion of the covenantal conditions for entry into Israel. Let me explain. In Shemot 23, the conditions of entry into the land are discussed because at this point, had it not been for the sin of the golden calf, the people would have been likely headed straight into the land. However, since the sin then nullified this original breed or covenant, the conditions are reiterated in chapter 34 after the nation attains forgiveness. Due to the sin of the spies, however, entry into the land is again postponed and the people wander for 40 years in the wilderness. As such, in Zvarim, the covenant and its conditions are stipulated yet again as the nation once again stands on the eve of entry into the promised land. In this context of entry into the land, each of these parshiot mentions the holidays as an alternative mode of worship to that practiced by the Canaanites. They focus only on the three pilgrimage festivals, which emphasize the need for centralization of worship and mandate that one come to the Mikdash and sacrifice only in Hashem's chosen abode, because these stand in contrast to the Canaanite practice of worshiping multiple gods in multiple places. It's also likely that this aspect of centralization of worship is highlighted in these lists because this is so vital upon arrival in Israel. Hashem wants to ensure that there be some sort of national service, at least periodically during the year. Unlike when living in the wilderness, when everyone was gathered around the Mishkan and could often unite in worship, once the nation settled in Israel, the people lived all over. It was only during these three times a year that they could join together. As we noted too, it is the agricultural components of the holidays that take center stage in these lists. They are dated to the solar calendar and referred to as Chag HaKatsir and Chag HaAsif, the festival of reaping or gathering. This too might be emphasized due to the context of countering Canaanite practices. In an agricultural society, all cultures likely had holidays in which they thanked their gods for crops. Hashem tells the nation that when they enter the land, they must be sure to thank Hashem at these points and not to turn to the Canaanite gods or join in the Canaanite festivities. In contrast to Shemot and Dvarim, the lists of holidays in Bimidbar and Dvarim are connected to each other in that both refer to the lunar calendar and both include all holidays, not just the three pilgrimage festivals. What nonetheless sets these two lists apart from each other? The Sifrei answers, in Torah Kohanim, in Sefer Vayikra, they appear to teach us their order in the year. In Chumash Kudim, in Sefer Bimidbar, they appear to teach us of their respective sacrifices. In other words, Sefer Vayikra lists the holidays in order to establish their date. Whereas in Sefer Bimidbar, the Torah concentrates on the Korban Musaf, which must be brought during each holiday. This distinction, though, is only partially helpful. 
It's definitely true that the distinguishing aspect of the list of holidays in Bimidbar is its focus on the Korban Musaf. The list does almost nothing else besides date the holiday and list the sacrifices to be brought. As we mentioned earlier, it does not even name some of the holidays, let alone speak about the connection, their connection to either the agricultural season or the historical event that they are commemorating. Yet, what does it mean that our chapter is needed in order to establish their dates? Since Bamidbar also includes dates, if knowing the holiday's dates was all that our chapter contributed, it would be redundant. It's possible that what the Sifre means is not just that our chapter lists the actual dates and order of the holidays, but that it speaks of the Seder of the day, the order of each day as well. Our chapter is the most complete of the various chapters dealing with holidays. As we saw, in addition to giving dates, it touches on the sacrifices of the day, on the festival's unique laws, and even the reasons for the holidays. We had pointed out, though, that it does not consistently address each of these aspects, and we wonder why not. It might be that our chapter expands at length when necessary, but summarizes when a certain aspect of a holiday has been covered elsewhere in Torah. Since the laws of Pesach are detailed in Shemot 12, by us, they are only mentioned briefly. The special of mitzvot of Sukkot, in contrast, would have not yet been discussed or elaborated upon. So too, since Bimidbar covers the laws of the Korban Musaf, our chapter simply alludes to it. But as a whole, our chapter is actually the central unit dealing with the meaning and laws of each festival. Since the context of the chapter and the subject of this part of Vayikra is holiness, and these are holy days, it's a fitting place to put such a list. Let's now move to get an overview of the chapter and its structure. On one hand, it's very simple, as the chapter simply takes us throughout the year, holiday by holiday. It opens in verses 1 through 3 with Shabbat, a weekly holy day. Afterwards, it begins discussion of the once-a-year holidays, starting with Pesach and Chag HaMatzot in verses 4 through 8. Verses 9 through 22 move to speak about the special offering of the Omer, an offering from the first of the barley harvest, and then speak of the offering of the two loaves from the first of the wheat harvest 50 days later on Shavuot. Verse 23 begins the list of holidays that fall out in the seventh month, discussing Rosh Hashanah in verses 23 and 24, Yom HaKippurim in verses 25 through 32, and Sukkot in the rest of the chapter. Discussion of each of these holidays is marked with a new opening by Daber Hashem and Moshe Lemor. There is, though, one exception. Discussion of the Omer offering and the offering of the two loaves on Shavuot are connected in one unit, highlighting how Torah views them as two parts of one long process. This is also reflected in the mitzvah Sfirah to Omer, the need to count from one to another. Emir Tashem will discuss the significance of this connection more in our next class. Rav David Tzvi points out that the chapter appears to divide the holidays into two groups, devoting an equal number of verses to each. Verses 1 through 22 speak mainly of the holidays of the spring, from Pesach to Shavuot, while verses 23 through 44 speak of the holidays of Tishrei. Each of these units is marked by the now familiar ending, Ani Hashem Elokechem. This structure, then, sounds quite logical and well-ordered. There are nonetheless two troubling aspects to it. These relate not so much to the list of the holidays itself, but rather to the doubling and placement of both the chapter's introduction and its conclusion. The chapter opens naturally by introducing the topic to be discussed, 
דבר על בני ישראל ואמרת עליהם מועדי השם אשר תקראו אותם בקראי קודש אליהם מועדי. Speak to the children of Israel and tell them the set feasts of Hashem which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations even these are my set feasts. The chapter then speaks about Shabbat the first holy day in verse 3 only to repeat the introduction almost verbatim in verse 4 where we once again read Eila Moadei Hashem Mekrei Kodesh Asher Tikruotam Moadam These are the set feasts of Hashem even holy convocations which you shall proclaim in their appointed season. What is the need for this dual introduction? And why is Hashem thereby separated from the rest of the list? At the end of the chapter, we see a similar phenomenon. After speaking about Sukkot in verses 33 through 36, verses 37 and 38 appear to conclude the unit, stating, Ela Moadei Hashem Asher Tikruotam Mikro'ei Kodesh. Yet, verses 39 through 43 then continue to speak about Sukkot. And verse 44 then again ends the unit with the concluding statement by Daber Moshe et Moadei Hashem el Bnei Yisrael. Once again we ask, why the need for a double ending? And why split up the discussion of Sukkot right in the middle? Various commentators have attempted to answer these questions, giving local answers to each issue. Let's start with the issue of the double introduction. Some suggest that the Torah separates Shabbat from the rest of the Moadim because though it too is a Moed, it is fundamentally different than the other set times. On one hand, it has much in common with the festivals. It is also called a Mikra Kodesh. Work is prohibited and a Musaf sacrifice is obligated. However, it is nonetheless separated from the other festivals in that it comes weekly, always on the same day of the week, while the others are annual festivals which can occur on any day depending on the year. Thus, according to this approach, the first introduction is for Shabbat itself, and the second for the other festivals. Ramban disagrees, suggesting that the introduction in verse 2 is not referring to Shabbat at all, but only to the festivals that follow. Shabbat is mentioned here not because it is one of the Moadim, but because it stands in contrast to them. He writes, Shabbat is mentioned only in order to negate the laws of the festivals and not in order to elaborate on its commandments. Therefore, with regards to Shabbat, we are not told, and you shall offer a burnt sacrifice to God as on the festivals. And at the end, the Torah mentions besides the Shabbatot of God. And this is what is meant by the question posed by the Midrash of our sages. What is Shabbat doing among the festivals? For Shabbat is not one of the festivals of God at all. According to Ramban, Hashem mentioned Shabbat only as a contrast to the other holidays. It itself is not considered a moed at all. The Torah simply wanted to highlight that in contrast to the festivals, on Shabbat, all work, included that needed to prepare food, is prohibited. This needs to be highlighted here to teach that when a holiday falls on Shabbat, this prohibition is still in effect. The Torah warns that the permission to cook on festivals is overridden when they fall on Shabbat. He tries to prove that the chapter is not suggesting that Shabbat itself is one of the Moadim from the chapter's conclusion, which appears to exclude Shabbat from the list when it says, besides Shabbat. Thus, according to Ramban, Shabbat is mentioned only as a parenthetical comment. But, since this tangential remark interrupted the flow of the text, verse 4 serves as a narrative resumption, reiterating the introduction mentioned earlier, which had been interrupted. 
There's a certain weakness in this approach, however. According to Ramban, it would seem that the Torah should have mentioned Shabbat first, before the festivals were introduced at all. Then afterwards, the verses could have introduced the festivals, and this would have served the same goal of contrasting the two, while making it clear that Shabbat has a different status, without confusing the reader. What about the double conclusion and the breaking up of the laws pertaining to the holiday of Sukkot? Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that there is a phenomenon in Tanakh to sometimes add an appendix after the conclusion of halachic unit, and that this is what is happening in our verses as well. He explains that the laws of Sukkot are split because they refer to two different time periods, those that were relevant during the wilderness period and those which only came into effect after arrival in the land. In the wilderness, the laws relating to the four species and sitting in huts were not yet obligated. The four species are related, to gathering, are related to gathering the produce of one's land, and as such, applicable only in Israel. Moreover, the huts are meant to commemorate the wilderness period itself, and so the obligation began only afterwards. The Rambam suggests that even the four species are mandated to commemorate the wilderness period, suggesting that we wave them to thank Hashem for taking us out of the wilderness, which was an unfertile place, and for bringing us instead to a fertile land with lush growth. Again, if so, this mitzvah would first be kept only after leaving the desert. As such, Rav Hoffman suggests that Sukkot is split into two discussions, one which is applicable in the wilderness and one which is applicable only after arriving in Israel. The former is spoken of before the chapter's conclusion, and the latter is added only as an appendix afterwards. Though Rav David Tzvi Hafen might be correct in his understanding of the changing observance of the holiday, we must still ask, why does the Torah not simply append the second unit of laws to the first by adding a sentence like, and when you arrive in the land? It would seem that this would be a much clearer way of expressing the idea that these laws are only relevant at that point. And in fact, in the first half of our chapter, when speaking of laws which were only to come into play in the land, like the Omer offering, which is only applicable in Israel, the laws are not split nor broken up by some concluding sentence, but rather simply prefaced by the statement, And when you come into the land, this is what you must do. A second weakness in the approaches we have seen so far is that none of them attempt to address the structure of the entire chapter together accounting for both the double introduction and double conclusion with one explanation. As such, I want to briefly lay out an alternative suggestion as to how to understand the chapter structure, which was proposed by my husband. He suggests that to understand the doubling of the introduction and, conclu and conclusion, one needs to recognize the different characters of the various holidays. To do this, we must pay attention to the differing ways that the days in which there is a prohibition to do work are referred to on each holiday. On Pesach and Shavuot, each of these days is called a Mikra Kodesh. As the verse states, Bayom Harishon Mikra Kodesh Yalachem, Komalachat Avodah Lotasu. Shabbat and Yom HaKippurim get the additional title, a Shabbat Shabbaton. Thus, for example, by Shabbat we read, Uvayom Hashvi'i Shabbat Shabbaton, Mikra Kodesh. Rosh Hashanah instead gets a shorter title, Shabbaton. The days in which work is prohibited on Sukkot are referred to in two different ways. 
In the first section in which Sukkot is mentioned, verses 33 through 36, they are called a mikra kodesh, like Pesach and Shavuot. While in the second section, in verse 39, they are called a Shabbaton, like Rosh Hashanah. It seems then that there are two different groupings of holidays, those that are only a mikra kodesh and those that are also a Shabbaton, and that Sukkot somehow falls into both groups. What though is the difference between a mikra kodesh and a Shabbaton? The prohibition to do work on Shabbat and Yom Kippurim is apparently fundamentally different from that on the three pilgrimage festivals. On the latter, which are only Mikra'e Kodesh, the prohibition is simply a means to an end. In order to sanctify the day and spend the time to recognize Hashem's role in nature and history, one needs to abstain from work. There's nothing commemorative about the actual abstention, though. On Shabbat and Yom Kippurim, in contrast, abstaining from work is a commemorative act. This is obvious on Shabbat itself, where the whole day revolved around the fact that this is the day when Hashem stopped creating. We rest because Hashem rested. It's possible, though, that abstaining from work on Yom Kippurim is similarly commemorative. Though we often think of the day as one whose goal is to achieve atonement, it's possible that this Moed, like so many others, is meant to commemorate a previous event as well to recall the first time that the nation achieved atonement, when Moshe went up to the mountain to ask forgiveness for Chet Egal. When he went, he abstained from eating and drinking and work, and so on Yom HaKippurim, we do the same. This difference between work being prohibited as a means to an end and work being prohibited as a fundamental commemorative act also explains the difference in the law regarding the preparation of food on the various holidays. On Shabbat and Yom HaKippurim, all work is prohibited, since this is a positive commemorative act. On the other days, which are not a Shabbat Shabbaton, food preparation is permitted, since it does not take away from achieving the other goals set for the day. What about the days that are called not a Shabbat Shabbaton, but just a Shabbaton, Rosh Hashanah and the one aspect of Sukkot? These stand in the middle. It is permitted to cook food on these days, yet they are still called a Shabbaton, so they are one level down from a Shabbat Shabbaton. It seems that the Torah is suggesting that these days must be connected to Yom HaKippurim in some manner, but are nonetheless not as sacred as it. It seems that one cannot just move into Yom HaKippurim, the holiest of days, when we aspire to reach the highest levels of spirituality without both preparation beforehand and time afterwards to slowly come back down to our normal state. Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot are the preparatory and concluding ends of Yom HaKippurim. This may be compared to the laws of Tzfilah. The heart of prayer is the Shemona Esrei prayer, but we don't jump in and start with it. Rather, Chazal instituted that one needs Lishot Sha'achat to spend time both before and after, to lead up to Shemona Esrei and to slowly wind down afterwards. So too, the Chagim of Tishrei form one big framework. We begin with Rosh Hashanah, which ushers in the 10 days of repentance. We prepare, we prepare, and reflect, slowly moving up toward Yom HaKippurim. But then we wind down afterwards through Sukkot, with this repentance period ending on Hoshana Rabbah, understood to be the final day of divine judgment, our last chance to overrule any decrees. What emerges from the chapter then is that there are really two separate cycles of Chagim, there are the three pilgrimage festivals on one hand, which are Mikra'e Kodesh, 
and served to both celebrate the agricultural seasons and commemorate the various historical events related to the Exodus. And on the other hand, there are the Chagim of Tishrei, which are Shabbatonim, and which are times of divine judgment and reflection on our deeds. Sukkot has two aspects, one which connects it to the pilgrimage festivals and one which connects it to the Chagim of Tishrei. So turning back to our chapter structure, the chapter is set up as two concentric circles. It has a double opening and double conclusion, one for each distinct cycle of Chagim. As such too, Sukkot itself is discussed twice, once, it's, once in its role as one of the pilgrimage festivals and once in its role as a Shabbaton. To end with a blessing that we may all merit to celebrate and make the most of each holiday cycle, to celebrate the three pilgrimage festivals with joy and thanksgiving for all that God has given us in the past and continues to give us in the present, and to make the most of the month of Tishrei to reflect on our actions and become the best people that we can be. Amir Hashem, next class, we will begin our textual verse-by-verse -verse study of the chapter, looking at the first half of the unit, which takes us from Pesach to Shavuot.